Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan. We, of course, have a great show for you today. Um, but before we get to that, I do want to mention that although it is not quite May Day yet, happy May Day in advance. And a reminder that on May Day, you can get a digital subscription to Jacobin for a dollar and a print subscription for $10. So definitely keep your eye out for that. Again, that will be coming up on May Day. Uh, on today's show, I am very excited to be talking to American Prospect editor David Dayen. Uh, you may have been following his coverage over there. I'll be talking to him about why the supply chain is so broken, what basically got us to this point, uh, how decades of pro-corporate policies set us up for this failure. And I also want to shout out that David has a recent piece in The Prospect that looks at a very little-known trade deal that's kind of idling in the House and the Senate right now. So stay tuned for that conversation. Um, I had a great time talking to him. Uh, and like I said, he really gets into the details of a bill that I think is pretty underreported. Uh, now, for my own comments, I will be taking a look at some new polling that is out that shows that Biden now has lower approval ratings with Latinos than with any other racial or ethnic group. I'm going to be looking into some of the reasons for why that is uh, and countering some, I think, myths about why that is. So again, that's coming up. Um, but first, to kick off, I am talking to one of our favorites, repeat guest Matt Brunig. He's just written a piece about uh, some of the internal dysfunction in the DC policy world and how this all leads to just broken and shitty policies being passed. So let's get to it. All right, so we are now joined by Matt Brunig. Uh, he is, of course, the founder and president of the People's Policy Project. Matt, good to see you. Oh, thanks for having me back. So uh, you had written a pretty interesting article for People's Policy Project uh, about kind of how the policy sausage gets made in D.C. and the ways in which it is, in fact, super dysfunctional. And uh, this 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 all kind of goes back to last year. You were very openly critical of certain aspects of the child care plan that Democrats were trying to include in Build Back Better. Um, specifically, I remember you pointed out uh, that the way that the child care subsidies were structured uh, would sort of inadvertently end up raising costs for certain families right above uh, the kind of threshold cutoff. And obviously, you know, Build Back Better is in limbo, if not completely dead. So, you know, we don't have to get too into the weeds of the policy specifics at this point. But maybe just start by talking about uh, the reaction from Capitol Hill and the policy world to some of these criticisms, because there was quite a lot of blowback, uh, which is interesting because, you know, we love the People's Policy Project, but I, I didn't know that that, you know, it, it was such a hot topic in Congress. So tell us about what happened. Yeah, I mean, there was there was a tremendous reaction uh, on the Hill and, and Politico and a lot of publications. Uh, the Center for American Progress uh, put out a whole tweet thread, probably, I don't know, 15, 20 tweets uh, talking about it in which they had screenshotted the headline of my uh, article and then like sort of like crossed out parts of it. And it was very, very elaborate, which, as you point out, is very funny, right? I mean, Center for American Progress has 
a budget of, uh, I think, over $40 million a year, and our budget is a little over $100,000 a year. Um, and, uh, you know, Republicans were passing it around. I mean, it was, it was just lighting up the hill, um, going through emails and stuff. And I guess they thought, oh, man, this is, this is a real problem for us. Um, this is a talking point people are going to be able to seize upon. Um, and they, they started coming after me. I would say the most interesting instance of this was in Politico, which ran a piece that was basically just there to kind of slam me. I mean, they did talk to me for comment and stuff like that, but they, you know, you know how these things are done. Someone must have pitched a piece to the author and they lined up quotes from everyone. Uh, Senator Patty Murray had a quote against me and um, unnamed Democratic aides mm. and uh, think tankers at CAP and the National Women's Law Center and, you know, everyone who was kind of behind it, you know, mm -hmm. sort of did all these, uh, put out all these quotes saying that I was off base. Um but um, it was very weird, you know, what was happening because, of course, I'm reading all this material. Okay, let's see what you have to say. And it's, it was all very nonspecific, you know. Mm -hmm. I raised a very, very specific point, not a vague kind of like ideological point about the cutoff. It was a technical point. So what is your technical objection? And, and none of it really contained a technical response. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, so the D.C. Uh, Democratic policy apparatus kind of turns against you in one fell swoop. Um, Matt, maybe maybe you're wrong, right? Maybe you had a really bad idea and, you know, everybody everybody closed ranks because, you know, what you were saying was, in fact, truly, truly just beyond the pale. However, you later find out that there are several people in the policy world uh, in D.C. who privately had exactly the same concerns that you expressed publicly, but nobody wanted to say anything out loud. Um, how did you find out about this? And what does this really tell us about the policy world and kind of this like weird relationship between think tanks and politicians and um, even journalists? Yeah, I mean, you know, before even that, um, uh, I would say a couple, maybe uh, 10 days after I put that out. And like you said, I was like, oh, my God, did I miss something? I don't know what's going on. You know, normally I don't get this kind of reaction. Right. Um, the D.C. city government, weirdly enough, put out this report because a similar proposal had been uh, proposed on the city level in D.C. And they had analyzed that proposal. They had their like Department of Education, the like city level version of that to look into it. And I read that report and it's it reached the same conclusion I reached about mm -hmm. the cutoff and uh, like the mixed subsidy and all that kind of stuff. And so then I was feeling good. I was like, OK, great. Like these people, obviously, you're not, <laughs> you know, they're not on the take. They're not, you know, it's, it's just like government bureaucrats, basically. Um, but then, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> after a while, you know, there were plenty of people who would kind of say, yeah, we think your analysis is right. We think your analysis is right. But no one in these think tank, everyone in the think tank world that were like childcare advocates, like everyone in the childcare space, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Just last week, this is really when I found it out, Matt Iglesias in his newsletter, Slow Boring, uh, he was reading my stuff at the time. Um, I know, you know, he would tweet it out sometimes and link mm -hmm. to it sometimes in his newsletter. And uh, he, he revealed that uh, during this process, you know, I guess he put out feelers to talk to other think tank people. Uh, he's got a lot of connections uh, in D.C. and, uh, you know, just talk to people privately. And he, he wrote on his newsletter last week that um, he asked around and, and someone told him that there was uh, one of their colleagues at one of these main, uh, you know, mainstream 
left center left think tanks said that they had noticed the exact same problem that I had noticed before I noticed it. Like, mm-hmm. um, but that you know she brought it up internally in the organization, and they had told her to keep quiet because quote the care groups have always been supportive on other issues. Mm-hmm. So kind of a political quashing of this right. uh, technical problem. So I that, that gets to something else about the policy world, which I think is interesting. On the one hand, you have sort of this extreme party discipline that that you and Iglesias sort of alluded to, that, you know, people behind the scenes didn't want to uh, upset or antagonize some of the other think tanks or other, you know, advocacy groups that they had worked with in the past. Um, but something else you point out in your piece is you mentioned that as you were sort of tracking and covering the various family and child care provisions in Build Back Better, um, you, along the way, basically discovered that an unsettling number of policy experts, Capitol Hill journalists, and even some actual sitting members of Congress just oftentimes seemed to have no idea what was in a given bill. Um, how exactly does this happen? Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in general, obviously, these bills are very big, and it's going to be hard for a lot of people to read them. Um but what they usually do is they put out these little fact sheets, these section by section fact sheets. And, you know, they can be pretty long, too. But, you know, the idea is, well, the child care section could be summed up in maybe, you know, 50 words if you were really, you know, economical about it. And so you could kind of go through the bill that way. And um, that that fact sheet was wrong. It was wrong in a number of ways, actually. I remember, uh, and I didn't pre- bring this up in my piece, but I remember at one point I was reading the New York Times coverage of the bill. And they had some numbers in there that I was just like, that is not right. I, I, I'm I crazy. And I went and reread the section. And then eventually I put it together that the section by section kind of cheat sheet had the wrong numbers in it. And the New York Times had reported that. I actually tried to get them to correct that and they never did. Uh, it's still incorrect on the website now. But um, yeah, so if that section by section fact sheet doesn't get updated, people don't know. And so what had happened was the pre-K uh, part of the bill, uh, which um, you know was often reported as like universal pre-K, the government's going to provide universal pre-K. Right. It wasn't that at all. What it was was the federal government was promising to cover 100% of the costs of any state that wanted to do universal pre-K uh, for three years. And then from there, it would be a little bit less, and then it would drop to zero. That was how it was initially written. And then they swapped that out for saying we'll cover 100% of the first three years, we'll only cover $18 billion of costs for the first three years for the whole country. So that's like $6 billion a year. I mean, it's basically nothing. They didn't update the fact sheet. Um, and so the only way you could know about it is if you were reading the legislative text every time it was updated. Um, and I was doing that for a few of the sections, not all the sections. It would be impossible um, mm-hmm. to cover that many sections, but that was one I was reading. And so... I noticed that I was the first person to report on it. And you, I mean, that's a big development. I mean, basically, yeah. that provision was essentially eliminated for the first three years. Um, mm-hmm. But they were carrying on as if it wasn't. And I mean, as far as I know, very few people knew, except for probably that kind of internal group that was working on the, the bill, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe just as kind of like a broad question, how how do you think the policymaking world, um, obviously, again, not just the lawmakers themselves, but also their staffers, uh, think tank personnel, and, you know, as I mentioned before, Capitol Hill journalists, how did this kind of policy apparatus become so insular and dysfunctional? And maybe lastly, like, how do you think we can fix it? Um, obviously, independent uh, think tanks like your own is maybe one solution, um, but but what else? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. You know, uh, in the 80s, 
uh, they defunded a lot of the congressional funding, like the funding for congressional staff. And that seemed to really launch a lot of dependence on outside uh, experts, uh, whether that's lobbyists um, for, you know, commercial interests or and then you get these kind of philanthropic projects where uh, people who have a lot of money want to influence politics, realize, hey, if I just build out an organization that does a lot of this work that Congress used to do internally, mm-hmm. now I'm kind of in the driver's seat. I can kind of push the agenda a little bit. And so, you know, these things become kind of hobby projects, especially lately of just ultra high net worth individuals. Um, yeah. Some um, companies donate, um, unions donate as well but not not as much. It's really dominated by very rich people for whom this really is just kind of a hobby and um, companies who are, you know, trying to shade influence here and there. And so, you know, Congress runs on those entities. That's they, they, they produce the information and knowledge and policy ideas that uh, go through Congress. I mean, the whole child care proposal came out of the Center for American Progress in like mm-hmm. 2010. Um, you can like put your finger on, on where, where it started and it just kind of moved from there. And yeah, I mean, that would be kind of all well and good. I mean, it's never all well and good, but at least in theory, like, oh, we have this kind of group of think tanks, this sector of think tanks, and they all kind of fight back and forth. And I've got a child care proposal and you've got a child care proposal and we argue about it and maybe Mm -hmm. something emerges out of the end. And that's just not what happens at all, right? (laughs) A few kind of power players at the top of some of these significant organizations, I mean, they kind of decide on what the consensus is going to be for how we're going to move forward. And then everyone falls in line. Um, And you don't get to hear any criticisms of the proposals. Uh, The funders don't want a whole lot of uh, battles internally. They don't, you know, that's not really good business for them to be fighting with one another. They want to just come together. Um, The employees, the people who work in the think tanks, they're trying to work in other think tanks or they might be trying to work for campaigns or maybe on the Hill, Uh, like the whole ecosystem, right? As a labor market, it's, it's not in your best interest to attack people. I mean, I experienced yeah. that personally. Uh, what happens when you do that? That's why I have my own personal think tank at this point. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, you, you see how it kind of all lines up to just sort of say, well, let's get behind this and let's not say anything. And by the mm-hmm. way, if we don't say anything, it kind of, no one's going to say anything. Right. Like yeah. The journalists don't know. Right. And, you know so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that point about the journalists, which theoretically would be kind of one line of defense against the, you know, extreme party discipline or, you know, um, the kind of think tank propaganda. The fact that the journalists uh, so often are not pushing against these narratives or pushing against these bad policies either is pretty concerning. So maybe as like a final question for you, are there any for, for the average kind of news consumer who like wants to follow policy, but, you know, isn't like you going to like sit and track every change that every bill goes through. Like, are there resources or places that the average news consumer can turn to, to kind of get a read on uh, like policy or like bills that are coming out other than your Twitter? (laughs) Well, um, you know, I mean, there are some journalists who do a good job. I think Um, Jeff Stein at the Washington post does a good job. Uh, Rachel Cohen, who's now at Vox, Mm -hmm. she does a good job. Um, there are a handful of other ones I'm trying to think of, of them now. But, you know, the, those are people who, if they write something, I, I mean, they're usually, they have enough skepticism to know, like to yeah. not take something seriously. Um, like that's kind of what you're looking for. And it's hard to find those people. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I wish I, I wish there was. I mean, e- even organizations that you think might 
you know, it's weird. Like these organizations, they kind of take the fact that they're sort of trusted and they kind of use that as political capital, yeah. you know? And so you're kind of like, oh, well, that's a trusted organization. They know a lot about, you know, whatever it might be, um, uh, child care or whatever. And so they're not going to blow that. And it's like, uh, you'd be surprised. Like they're going right. to use that to kind of get some favor here and there. And, you know, so I'd say it's really, really tough, um, yeah. you know? The only way I do it is is by nitpicking just the issues I know about. I mean, right. there are all these other issues I don't cover, and I read every the stuff everyone else does, and I'm I'm sure there's a lot of stuff there that's not quite right. But I'm right. just like, well, it's in the Times, so I guess that's probably it, you know? Right, right, yeah. All right, well, um, again, we, Matt, we will link your piece on the dysfunction of the policy apparatus in the description box below. Um, as always, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right. So again, I will be making some comments in a little bit about why Latino voters are fleeing the Democratic Party. But first, a quick message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes every month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first three months. And if you join in April, you'll get these books. Scorched Earth Beyond the Digital Age to a Post-Capitalist World by Jonathan Crary, a polemic on resisting the digital world of late capitalism. Half-Earth Socialism, a plan to save the future from extinction, climate change, and pandemics by Drew Pendergrass and Troy Vettis, a radical manifesto to address climate disaster and guarantee the good life for all. Passages from Antiquity to Feudalism by Perry Anderson, classic work in historical sociology. We Want Everything, a novel by Italian poet and activist Nani Balestrini, plus a bonus book, Russia Without Putin by Tony Wood to understand the historical context of Russia's war against Ukraine. Become a member today at versobooks.com. Since the 2020 election, we've seen a number of warning signs that Democrats are steadily losing support from Latino voters. First, several predominantly Latino areas, including border towns in Texas, shifted significantly toward Trump in 2020. More recently, 538 found that Biden had lost more support from Latinos than from any other racial or ethnic group. Judging by the latest polling, this trend has only gotten worse as we approach midterms. A recent Quinnipiac poll put Biden's approval rating at a miserable 26% among Latino voters, which again was the lowest approval rating of any group surveyed. Given that Latinos currently make up one of the fastest growing demographic groups in the U.S. and have the potential to make or break elections in competitive congressional districts and in swing states, these trends could spell electoral disaster for Democrats. In other words, anyone who doesn't want Republicans to control every branch of government at the national level should be interested, to say the least, in understanding exactly why Latino voters are abandoning Democrats. Over the past few years, a growing number of liberal commentators have argued that it's because Latinos are increasingly identifying as white. For instance, after Trump increased his share of Latino voters in 2020, one contributor to CNN wrote... As Latinos settle and integrate, fewer are likely to think of themselves as immigrants and may increasingly embrace an expanded sense of white identity. If this is the case, these voters will not see themselves as the target of attacks on demographic change, and there will be minimal pressure for the Republican Party to pull back from its race-based appeals and culture wars. Another contributor to the Washington Post wrote, What are we to make of Latino voters inspired by Trump? I call this phenomenon multiracial whiteness. 
the promise that they too can lay claim to the politics of aggression, exclusion, and domination. Multiracial whiteness promises Latino Trump supporters freedom from the politics of diversity and recognition. And here's a former Hillary Clinton campaign director arguing that Latino voters' abandonment of Democrats has nothing to do with the Democrats themselves and that it's actually all about Latinos' relationships to whiteness. And I think it goes beyond politics. It goes beyond strategy. It goes beyond Democrats needing better strategies, better tactics, better messaging, knocking on doors, not two weeks before, but two years before. I think what we're seeing right now, what we see on those numbers is that there is a cultural identity crisis that we are undergoing as a community that is completely splitting and dividing Latinos. And in this crisis, you have on the one hand, Latinos that believe that in order to achieve the American dream, you have to get as close as possible to whiteness. And that is something that Trump gave them permission to do. And on the other hand, you have Latinos that believe that in order to achieve the American dream, you have to get as far as possible from whiteness. Now, to be clear, plenty of Latinos do identify as white. According to the Pew Research Center, around 60% of Latinos in the U.S. today consider themselves white. However, I'm not convinced that whiteness really explains why Latino voters are souring on Democrats. The underlying assumption here seems to be that as Latinos are being assimilated into whiteness, their politics are moving to the right because they're now theoretically able to reap the various social benefits of white supremacy. To me, this argument seems like a weird funhouse mirror version of demographic destiny, which of course refers to the idea that as the U.S. population becomes less white, the country will get more progressive. This version of demographic destiny, on the other hand, just inverts that by assuming that as a group becomes more white, their politics will go in the other direction. Both versions of demographic destiny let Democrats off the hook by suggesting that racial identity is the primary force that shapes people's politics and that there's very little that Democrats can do to counter this. Even if that may be true, in some cases, I'm not sure that we actually have a ton of evidence to support the idea that racial identity is what's motivating a significant number of Latino voters today. To put it another way, presuming that Latinos are leaving the Democratic Party because they're embracing whiteness seems unnecessarily speculative. If we want to figure out what motivates a critical mass of Latino voters to cast ballots for some candidates over others, why not just start by taking them at their word? Polls and surveys show over and over that overwhelming majorities of Latino voters consistently rank their top issues as the economy, jobs, and healthcare. Here's how Democratic strategist and former Bernie Sanders advisor Chuck Rocha recently explained it. Always with Latinos, it's about jobs, economy, and providing for their family. In Latino focus groups that we're currently doing across the country, some of the top issues are what are the party, Democrat or Republican, going to do to make my job or my life better? Gas is going up. Right now, it's currently going down. Bread's been going up. The cost of things overall has went up. They want to know, what are you going to do immediately to help me? It helped Democrats to say that we got everybody vaccinated and that we had relief checks. But now folks want to know, what are you going to do to ease up the pressure that they feel in everyday life? So blue collar, working class issues are issues that resonate with Latinos. Jobs, economy, health care, education are normally the top three. The polling firm Equis, which specializes in outreach to Latino voters, confirmed these priorities in their own study, which came out last year. They found that one reason why Trump got a boost among Latino voters is because although a majority said they did not approve of Trump overall, they did approve of his handling of the economy during the pandemic. 
77% of Latino voters in 2020 approved of stimulus checks, which, if you recall, were first issued during Trump's term. 66% said they supported Trump's position on reopening the economy, and 55% said they supported the idea of, quote, living without fear of COVID. That's likely due to the fact that Latinos are disproportionately employed in the sectors of the economy that were hit the hardest by shutdowns, including food service and hospitality. On the other hand, as I've discussed before, most people in the U.S. right now perceive Joe Biden and the Democrats to be weak on the economy. Yes, unemployment went down and GDP rose during Biden's first year in office, but at the same time, inflation has wiped out wage gains and the cost of things like food and gas has gone up significantly. So with Latinos, you have a group of largely working class voters that care about the economy and bread and butter issues above all. And then you have a political party that keeps saying the economy is doing great, but isn't actually delivering much relief to working people. Is it any surprise that these voters are becoming more and more disillusioned? Maybe we wouldn't see this mass exodus of Latino voters from the Democrats if the party actually ran candidates focused on working class economics. Relatedly, I also have to address the claim that Latino voters are uniquely susceptible to right-wing fear-mongering around the threat of socialism, because this always comes up whenever people discuss Latinos moving to the right politically. Here's one example. Because Republicans have figured out what dirty politics means in the sense of how to get Latinos, and that is by exploiting one of their biggest and deepest fears and traumas, and that is the fear of socialism. Right, because they know that what many millions of Latinos have in common in this country is that one of the very reasons why they come to this country isn't necessarily to flee socialism, but to flee a form of authoritarianism, right? To flee a form of an, an unbalance of power. And that resonates, right? And they've tapped into that fear and they've figured out that the most persuasive way to get them is through fear. Now, it's true that in the abstract, the word socialism doesn't pull well with Latino voters. The same goes for most Americans. But if it's truly the case that Latinos are drifting away from the Democrats because they're put off by anything even remotely associated with words socialism, someone still has to explain why in the 2020 Democratic primaries, Latinos voted by huge margins for the socialist. Exit polls from the 2020 primaries show that Bernie Sanders overwhelmingly won Latino voters in early states. In Nevada, Sanders won 53% of Latino voters compared to the 17% who voted for Biden. In Texas, Bernie won 39% of Latino voters, whereas Biden won 26%. And in California, Bernie won 49% of Latino voters and Biden won 19%. To drive this point home even further, let's take a look at how the neighborhoods with the highest percentage of Latino residents in Los Angeles voted in 2020. East LA, which is almost 97% Latino, voted for Bernie. Maywood, which is over 96% Latino, voted for Bernie. Walnut Park, Huntington Park, and Boyle Heights, all of which are around 95% Latino? You guessed it, all of these neighborhoods voted for Bernie. The reason why I bring up Bernie Sanders is because he basically did what I think all Democrats could and should be doing if they want to win back Latino voters. He campaigned early and hard in states with large Latino populations, he concentrated bilingual outreach efforts in Latino neighborhoods, and he stuck to bread and butter issues. As the co-founder of Equis put it, a lot of what he did was not rocket science. In about six months, we'll be facing midterm elections. Senate seats in several states with sizable Latino populations, particularly Arizona and Nevada, will be in play. 
In other words, Democrats have a rapidly shrinking window in which they'll be able to make their case to Latino voters. Thanks to the Sanders campaign, we already have one partial blueprint for how to do this. But whether mainstream Democrats will choose to take any lessons from it at all is unfortunately another matter entirely. All right, so we are now joined by David Dayan. He is the executive editor of The American Prospect and also author of the books Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power, and Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. Uh, David has also been covering, among other topics, trade and the various supply chain woes in The Prospect. So I thought I would have him on today to talk about some of those things. David, good to see you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me back. So uh, let's just talk about the supply chain then, uh, because The Prospect recently had an entire special issue where you and several other writers uh, looked at some of the ongoing supply chain woes. And um, specifically, a few of you argued that it wasn't COVID alone that you know, messed up the supply chain or got us to where we are now, although obviously that was a huge shock. So um, let's, let's talk about what caused that breakdown, uh, because you guys argue that it was really a long time in the making. What exactly made the supply chain so fragile? Well, to, to say it in, in perfect Jacobin speak, capitalism. <laughs> is, <laughs> Thank is you, David. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah uh, the, the pandemic, we like to say it was a catalyst, but not a cause of our problems. Our problems go back about 50 years to the way in which uh, corporations essentially uh, uh, pushed along uh, the federal government and governments all around the world to uh, reshape the system of commerce and logistics to their benefit. So what does that mean? That means that we got hyper-globalization so that, uh, you know, the old, the old story from, from the former CEO of General Electric, Jack Welch, was that the perfect uh, uh, factory would be built on a barge hmm. so he could move it to each low cost or low environmental or labor standard country that he could find uh, one by one. And that's essentially what happened, not with the barge necessarily, but that, that, we've, that, that corporations were allowed through capital mobility to move their factories to the places that were lowest cost, that were lowest uh, uh, environmental uh, uh, standards and the lowest labor standards. And this concentrated production, particularly in China, but also in some other areas in Southeast Asia. Um, so you had globalization was certainly part of this. Then you had uh, deregulation, mm -hmm. which was in order to uh, make it cost effective to get those goods from halfway around the world to where they needed to be in the United States, deregulating the particularly the transportation nodes that get us there, uh, shipping, rail, trucking, all of that happened in the 1970s. Uh, and on also in, in the Clinton era, there were some other deregulations that happened. Um, so uh, that made it somewhat more cost effective uh, because at the expense of workers, essentially, yeah. uh, 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 driving down standards uh, across the board. Uh, you also had this revolution sort of managerial revolution in just-in-time logistics, mm -hmm. which says we don't need inventories. We will get stuff directly from the factory, get it over to our stores. We won't have to hold it very long because that costs money. And we'll only grab what we need at that particular time and then immediately sell it off to consumers. Um, 
those two things, uh, which also led to a lot of monopolization within the system uh, because concentrated production kind of benefited concentrated industries. Um, uh, all of these things made the supply chain much more brittle, much more fragile than it had to be. And uh, this stands to reason, right? If you get everything from one place in China, well, if that one place happens to be the start of a pandemic outbreak, then you're going to have problems <laughs> and you're going to rely on these systems uh, that are dominated by a handful of corporations. Mm -hmm. One of the amazing things we found in our research is that the, the ocean shipping industry, which became much more important in this time, their earnings in 2021 were equal to the entire industry's earnings from 2010 to 2020 combined. They increased their their uh, rates tenfold or more uh, because they were now seen as so vital to uh, getting a scarcer and scarcer amount of goods across the the, the world to uh, to various outlets. Mm -hmm. So you have all of these things that uh, were were done in the name of of. Uh, low cost, efficiency, cheap goods. We essentially sold out our own industrial base, gave off all of these, these various industries to monopolies because we were told in the, in the exchange we would get cheap goods for, to uh, you know, enhance our lifestyle. And what happened is that this, this introduced this hidden risk into the system that the pandemic exposed and now we don't even get the cheap goods. Right. I'm so the, say. the exchange is for nothing. And uh, and it created this inflationary environment that we're mm -hmm. in. So that's really what happened. Yeah. So let's fast forward a little bit to the pandemic now. Obviously, we've had this major shock to the supply chain and um you wrote an interesting article recently that looked at how basically for months now, people have been saying, oh, the supply chain issues are easing, right? Or they're, they're, they're about to ease. And you argue that, well, we actually have some mixed signs. Uh, so, so what does this ambiguity or what does the kind of vacillation that we're seeing now, uh, with these signs regarding the supply chain and, you know, whether these issues are easing, um, what does this tell us about the overall state of the supply chain right now? And also what kinds of supply chain issues we might see in the future? Well, I think what it tells us is that unless you fix those root causes, those root right. problems that I just talked about, you're always going to come up against this. And it could be because of a pandemic. And actually, one of the major impediments right now is the fact that the pandemic might be easing in the United States and in, in parts of the West. But in China, it is now surged. And the city of Shanghai is essentially under lockdown a major port and export city of 26 million people where the factories have been shuttered for weeks and weeks and weeks. And that will eventually lead to shortages in the United States because mm -hmm. of this globalized system that we have. Yeah. Um, but it's not just pandemics, right? Yeah. Uh, we saw uh, when we had the, the Freedom Convoy in, in Canada, that blocked entry of goods into the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, what we saw just in the last week in Texas, where they increased inspections uh, the governor, Greg Abbott, increased inspections, uh, presumably so he could find illegal immigrants or, or drugs or something like that. He ended up finding none of that, but he cost the country a great deal of money because uh, these inspections slowed down the process. They caused food to rot. 
And uh, it's another uh, example of, of how fragile this system is because it's none of it's homegrown and it's all being trucked in. Yeah. Uh, another example is climate change. Yeah. Um, interestingly, uh, when you look at production in China prior to the recent outbreak, the real impediments to production ha came over the last year or two since the onset of the pandemic. More of, of, of that breakdown came because of climate events. The Yangtze River flooding last summer really had a major impact on, on being able to distribute goods from Asia to the United States. Um, because of a heat wave last summer, uh, the, because of the way in which China's uh, energy system works, a lot of factories had to shut down because they were using too much electricity. Uh, particularly for air conditioning. So uh, we see that, and we know that there are going to be more frequent climate and weather-related events in the future. Uh, so that can be uh, something that causes this, this kind of, of delays in the supply chain. So it's not just pandemics, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's all of the possible things, whether it's political unrest, I mean, we didn't talk about the huge one, which is the war in Ukraine, which right. uh, Ukraine and Russia uh, not only are major oil and gas exporters, but major exporters of wheat. And, and the reason that we're seeing high food prices around the world is largely because of that loss of production in Ukraine, uh, particularly for wheat. So uh, there are all sorts of factors that can cause a, a supply shock, mm -hmm. climate, political unrest. Uh, random accidents and fires uh, or 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 a pandemic. And uh, all of these things end up having the same impact on a system that is too fragile to account for these problems because it's engineered in such a way that you have to have this sort of perfect dance of right. all this stuff moving in one direction and another. So while we do see some easing because Inflation is causing consumer spending to pull back, and 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 we're seeing what what is uh, called the bullwhip effect. And what that means is that uh, if you are a supplier, uh, like a retailer, and you're asking for more goods uh, because you see all of this uh, these supply disruptions, and you want to make sure that you have stuff in your store to sell, so you so you double order beyond what you normally would, right? So that by the time that gets back to the factory and that factory gets back to you, suddenly we're in an, a different environment where people aren't buying a bunch of stuff and you're stuck with a bunch of goods. And that's the bullwhip, right? But the second part of that bullwhip is that China stopped producing anything. So if you stop then ordering goods because nobody wants to buy your stuff that you have now, you're going to run out of that inventory eventually for basic necessities in particular. And you're going to have a second bullwhip and, and more shortages. So I think that's where we might be headed. And it's a really dangerous kind of situation. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, crafting kinds of uh, measures or policies that might start to uh, ease some of these issues or even address some of the root causes that you talked about, uh, another article that you recently had in the prospect uh, was looking at a bill that is currently in the House and the Senate. This bill aims to resolve some of these supply chain issues and increase domestic manufacturing. So uh, I want to break it down because there are a couple different components to this bill. Uh, some of those components have bipartisan support. And then, of course, you get 
into some of the other measures that are a little more contentious. So very broadly, uh, what is in this bill and why is it why is it important? Because it's mostly flown under the radar. Um, what, what's going on here? Yeah. So uh, the frustrating thing is this bill has like three different names. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> it's hard to say what the bill is, but um, it's been called the U.S. Competition or U.S. Innovation and Competition Act in the Senate. It passes the Competes Act, which is some acronym, some dumb acronym in the House. And it's also been called by the White House the Bipartisan Innovation Act. So let's just call it Competes, just to make it easier. Um, so what's in Competes? Uh, one part of it is uh, uh, funding essentially subsidies for domestic manufacturing, particularly semiconductors, mm -hmm. uh, advanced semiconductor uh, manufacturing. Uh, there's about $52 billion in the bill. And I mean, some a couple of people have said that that, uh, you know, these are robust industries that don't actually need that amount of subsidies. Bernie Sanders has a, uh, a legislation to that effect, effect, especially because there is no guarantee that that money won't be used for stock buybacks or dividends or anything like that. Uh, however, there are a lot of companies that have suggested that they would move some of their production to the United States if this bill passed. And, and so that, I think, is driving uh, some of the product, uh, some of the uh, interest there. Um, so that's one part of it. And that's going to pass. That's pretty much the same in the House and Senate bills. Yep. There's another part of it that is about uh, increasing uh, advanced research and education for uh, uh, these particular kind of science and engineering issues in the United States. Also, there's some slight differences, but that's probably also, you know, pretty similar in the House and Senate bills. That's going to pass. It's it's like money for the National Science Foundation to add an advanced directorate, uh, create these hubs around the country that would be manufacturing and innovation hubs uh, that uh, would be done through universities. Um, so that's, I mean, like, yeah, more education sounds good. So uh, that that's the second part. Um, the third part, which actually wasn't even in the bill to begin with, is this trade chapter. And uh, it's become the most contentious part of this bill, even though it didn't exist in the bill before. Right. Um, one part of it I think is very important, and that is uh, money for supply chain logistics mm -hmm. uh, to identify disruptions, delays, uh, shortfalls in the U.S. supply chain, and to bring critical goods manufacturing back to the United States. And that includes health, uh, public health issues. That includes uh, a ver a various amounts of, of uh, pharmaceuticals and things, things of that nature. Um, there's money in the House version of that bill, about $45 billion. There's no money for that in the Senate bill. So they got to figure out what they're going to do there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but then there are these other like, like purely trade related parts of this that uh, the as as someone explained it to me, who's sort of on the progressive side, they said, you know, the House bill is something I would fight for. There's a lot mm -hmm. of good stuff in the House bill and the Senate bill, is, uh, the Senate version of this, the trade chapter is like if Frankenstein and the werewolf and and the and the Dracula had a baby, like it's terrible. It, it's uh, and, and it was largely written by Republicans, Senate mm -hmm. Republicans, uh, in conjunction with Ron Wyden, who uh, uh, kind of hues towards the tech industry on some mm -hmm. of these issues. And there's a lot of very tech friendly, big tech friendly stuff mm -hmm. in in that trade chapter, the Senate version. Um, and we can get into the specifics of this. 
Um, but uh, that's the real sticking point here. Mm-hmm. And in a bill that's supposed to increase U.S. competitiveness and, and, and allow uh, for the ability for U.S. workers to have good paying jobs in manufacturing, advanced manufacturing, and to ease our supply chain issues, mm-hmm. why would you create situations that, for example, lowers tariffs on these same kind of goods coming in from China? Yeah. Why would you have things that limit or eliminate inspections on on goods coming in from China? Right. Why would you, uh, uh, you know, why would you do all these things? So, yeah. so that's that's the thing that's going to have to be. Uh, uh, Figured out, both the House and Senate have passed their versions of these bills mm-hmm. by wide margins. There's now a conference committee where they're supposed to work out the differences in the bills between the House and the Senate. And the question is, how are they going to work out these differences? They're so diametrically opposed. Right. Uh, are you going to are they going to drop the trade chapter entirely? That doesn't seem tenable because there are a lot of things like. Uh, reauthorizations of various trade features like mm-hmm. trade adjustment assistance. When mm-hmm. a worker in the United States sees their job outsourced, they can apply for this assistance for new training, uh, health care, uh, uh, health care tax credit uh, improvements, uh, child care expenses so that they can train and get a better get a new job right. um, and, and also enhanced unemployment. That has to pass, right? And that's yeah. in the House bill, not in the Senate bill. And if it, it doesn't pass by the end of the year, no trade adjustment assistance will exist. This is a program that's been involved since that's been in effect since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So there's a, it doesn't seem like you can just drop the trade chapter and pass what you agree on. But also, it doesn't seem like you can figure out an agreement that anyone would would be satisfied with. Right. Um, so what do you do? And that's that's what I explore in that piece. Right. Yeah. I, I want to ask kind of a general question about mm-hmm. that political deadlock, because um, the, the topic of trade when it comes to the Democrats and the Republicans is kind of interesting, right? Because you've got on the one hand with the Republicans, now we have this sort of Trump wing that often mm-hmm. gestures toward protect- protectionism or, you know, increasing tariffs. Um, on the other hand, uh, as you sort of alluded to earlier, we know that plenty of Democrats historically have helped grease the wheels for bad trade deals in the past. So I'm curious, like, to what extent do you think trade today is a partisan fight? Because in this bill that you're talking about, it seems to break down pretty clearly. Um, But I'm just wondering what you make of those kind of tensions. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this is kind of a throwback to the old way of thinking about trade, where the Senate is taking a very corporate friendly line. Mm -hmm. And the House, in, in some ways, because the Senate did that, took a very progressive line. And it looks like it breaks down among the parties when there is more, more kind of, uh, there isn't the homogeneity that, uh, that, that, that previously might have existed there. Um, Certainly Democrats have been responsible for, you know, uh, it's neoliberal wing of pushing these trade deals that benefit corporations at the expense of us workers. Um, Certainly, over the last few years, at least rhetorically, although maybe not in total practice, uh, there's been this Trump wing that has talked about uh, that has sort of positioned itself a little more protectionist, put tariffs on China mm-hmm. um, and uh, was more in opposition to sort of the corporate consensus 
that we've seen around these issues. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the context of this. I think the reason that this has been different so far is that it hasn't been publicized very much. Right. Like nobody really knows that there's this trade chapter that's like severely different between the House and Senate versions. And so those those rhetorical issues that you bring up haven't come to the fore. And so I I think a lot of Republicans and Democrats don't even know what's in this trade chapter, really. And so I I think that's the main issue here is that it's being pushed along by a certain group that is that still has obvious power in Congress uh, that that can push these corporate friendly lines, uh, particularly around tech. And we, mm-hmm. we can talk about the, the, the two very important tech parts of this. Right. Um, uh, but uh, I don't think it has risen to the level where it, it fits into the the new trade narrative right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's interesting. I mean, I, I why do you think that it's gone so under the radar? Um, because again, you know, just to go back to Trump, I mean, he made trade kind of a centerpiece of his campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, other kind of Trump-affiliated Republicans were hammering away at that for a while. Um, why do you think there there has been so little attention to this? Well, as I said, it wasn't the main part of the bill. The right. bill was really supposed to be about semiconductor uh, manufacturing subsidies and uh, more innovation research uh, and, and education research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And sure. that's been how the bill has been described. Mm-hmm. And the trade chapter actually came in very late in the game. Uh, the Senate uh, was passing this bill and all of a sudden, uh, and of course, you know, you need 60 votes in the Senate, so you need Republican support. And Republicans on the Senate Finance Committee said, we need this this bill that they threw in called the Trade Act of 2021. They said, we need this in there or else we're not we're not going to be for the bill. And it threatened passage. Mm-hmm. And this is a major priority for Chuck Schumer, particularly the the, uh, the semiconductor component. Uh, it's a major priority for for several Democrats and Republicans uh, in the Senate. And so they they essentially bowed to the demands of the, this small group of Senate Republicans and Ron Wyden on certain mm-hmm. other parts of it. Um and uh, and they passed this. Yeah. And the House Democrats saw this and said, what is this? Like, what, what are we looking at here? So they pushed a very progressive version of a trade chapter kind of to set up a separate poll in the debate so that mm-hmm. now there's this negotiation between two you know, sides. And if, if they just passed a normal trade chapter, then it would probably look more like what the Senate passed. So they they decided to go, you know, in a much more progressive direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, then they have to find the consensus. But this all happened inside a bill that was that was projected to the public and, and even to people in Washington as being about semiconductors and mm-hmm. and research. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think I mean, I talked to members who are on the conference committee, like are the people who are deciding the bill. And they were like, yeah, I'm not familiar with the trade chapter. Why don't you tell me about it? So so like like it is not well known. Mm-hmm. Let's maybe talk about some of the big tech specifics that you alluded to earlier, because I think tech is another one of those interesting things where mm-hmm. the kind of lines between the Democrats and the Republicans like sometimes cross over or get a little muddled. Um, but you talk about uh, something specific in this bill, which you call the Amazon loophole. Uh, talk a little bit about how that works and um, what's going on with the Senate version. 
Absolutely. So anyone who has gone on international travel actually knows what I'm about to talk about here. Uh, because when you go on international travel and you come back to the United States, you get that card and that card says, you know, how much, you know, what are you declaring that you're bringing in from this other country? And there's usually a, a, an amount under which it doesn't have to be inspected. Yeah. And that amount is known as the de minimis threshold. So uh, a de minimis amount, a, a token amount of, of goods that you bring in doesn't have to be, you know, there's no tariff on it, there's no tax on it, there's no fee, and there's no inspection of it or any kind of record of it. And you just declare it and you say, yeah, I have, you know, $150 of keychains and, and T-shirts and I don't have to go through like the customs inspection process for it. Every country has this. But what's different is what that threshold level is at. Mm -hmm. And in 2015, a bunch of e-commerce firms got Congress to change that de minimis threshold from where it was at $200 to where it is now in the United States at $800. Mm -hmm. And $800, that is the third largest de minimis threshold in the world. Only Australia and Azerbaijan have a larger de minimis threshold. So what does that mean? Why did e-commerce firms want to change this number? Well, uh, they can get a company in China to ship you something that you bought online directly. And if it's under $800, they don't have to pay tariffs on it. They don't have to pay taxes on it. And it doesn't have to go through any inspection process. Mm -hmm. You just get it directly from China. Yeah. And uh, over 2 million packages a day come in under this de minimis threshold. It is a systematic strategy. I was told of a process where Large-scale goods are shipped to Mexico and brought to essentially chop shops where they chop them up into packages under $800 mm -hmm. and then move them into the United States with no tariff. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so obviously this costs the United States money, but I think what's almost more important is the lack of inspection. Yeah. So that means any kind of counterfeit good, any kind of defective good that can come in without anyone taking a look at it, which normally would be the case under a, a large scale inspection. Um, we uh, the, the Congress just passed a, a law preventing the entry of goods from the Xinjiang region of China that are made with forced labor. Right. And if it if they are brought in under this de minimis threshold, there is no way to inspect for that. There, there is no way to check and see, oh, who who actually produced this good and and is does this comply with our laws? So it's a, a major way that e-commerce firms get around uh, the whole process of consumer safety and product consumer product safety, mm -hmm. uh, get around all kinds of tariff laws. And of course, you know, this is like par for the course for Amazon. They, they try to find arbitrages around, uh, you know, various laws so that they can undercut the competition. And so, mm -hmm. uh, yes, it's been called the Amazon loophole because they're the major practitioner of this. So the, the Senate bill does nothing to this, doesn't change yeah. this at all. The House bill uh, put in a change. Earl Blumenauer, who's a congressman from from the Portland area, put in this change that said, if you are a country that is on a watch list for counterfeit goods, 
then you can't use the de minimis fresh threshold. Mm-hmm. So anything that comes in from that country, uh, it's, a, it's kind of a laser targeted way of stopping goods that come in from countries that we know are evading uh, the, the, the tariff laws, evading the inspection laws through this de minimis loophole uh, to stop them from doing that. So um, there, there's it's an open question whether or not that will be adopted Right. Uh, in in the final bill, but the House is trying to do it, and the Senate hasn't hasn't moved on. Yeah. Um, all right. So maybe just to kind of wrap everything up, the the trade issues and the supply chain mm-hmm. issues. Um, a final question for you, I guess, is how do we create a more resilient supply chain? And then maybe like a follow up is, you know, to what extent do you think it's possible at this this stage to reshore manufacturing? Because I, I feel like we do often hear a lot from, you know, progressives and people on the left that like that ship has sailed, right? Like we're not going to get manufacturing back. So actually we should, you know, put more resources into things like care work. And obviously while mm-hmm. I agree with the latter part of that statement, I am also curious as to what you think about the possibility for reshoring manufacturing? Yeah, I don't think we can reshore everything. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think that that is, is terribly viable. I think a couple things are viable. First of all, we can nearshore stuff, uh, uh, which will help in the way of, uh, uh, you know, reducing the long intermediation of these supply chains, I think is a, a primary goal here. Um, we have in place a U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement that was much stronger on labor uh, uh, in, in Mexico in particular. Uh, we've seen union elections that threw out the sham company union and put in a real union in, in these Mexican factories. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of the template agreement, but it's the only one in in effect right now uh, for what you can do in terms of labor standards uh, in a in a, a an international trade agreement. So that to the extent that we nearshore stuff to Mexico and Canada, I think that can be useful in, uh, uh, you know, in, improve not only improving the supply chain, but improving labor standards around the world. So that's number one. Uh, But I also think that there is room to reshore critical goods. And Mm -hmm. and that's what kind of the the, the House version of this competes bill talks about, which is that we can't get in a situation again where uh, the only people who make personal protective equipment are in uh, a country that is under lockdown. And so our uh, healthcare workers are using trash bags instead of gowns uh, while dealing with a, a very infectious disease. So uh, uh, whether that means stockpiling and, and doing a better job of using national stockpiles uh, and warehousing, or whether that means actually bringing back some of these critical goods and having them ready in the event of an emergency, uh, uh, I think there is, is room to, to do some of that stuff. And I think you're already seeing it. I mean, uh, with respect to, uh, we mentioned semiconductors, which actually are critical goods. They're used in a lot of medical devices. They're used in, uh, uh, you know, a, a host of different fields, which are important to uh, our economic security. Um you see Intel saying they're going to build a factory in Ohio. You see uh, TSMC, which is the world's largest 
a semiconductor manufacturer out of Taiwan, saying they're going to build a factory in uh, Arizona, I believe. Mm -hmm. Another one in uh, Samsung's doing one in Texas. Like this is already happening. People are realizing that just-in-time logistics is not a viable thing in a very, you know, volatile world. Yeah. Uh, and that we have to move towards just-in-case logistics right. so that we have, we have uh, you know, other possibilities, other options uh, in the event of, of critical uh, delays and, and disruptions in the supply chain. I think the ex experience of the pandemic has shown the business community, actually, that, that mm -hmm. we actually have to do something about this. And government has a role to play in uh, making sure that this happens. Uh, and not just through subsidies that are thrown at, at, at large corporations, but actually, you know, doing public manufacturing. There are yeah. bills to do public uh, uh, manufacturing of generic drugs, for example, mm -hmm. uh, the, the state of California has passed that and, and could actually today start manufacturing generic drugs. Um, there are public options that I think are available here as well. And then the other part of this is just re-regulating these industries. Right. A bill that piggybacked onto the competes situation was this bill called the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. And that got a broad bipartisan support in the House, uh, a voice vote in the Senate. So there wasn't even any kind of uh, opposition to it. It's likely going to pass at some point. This would be the first re-regulation of a major industry in the United States since the Cable Act in the 1980s. Um, and it would set standards for the shipping industry so that they can't gouge people with these extortionate prices uh, to ship goods. And uh, and that they would uh, they couldn't charge fees like there are fees charged at the ports to, to cargo owners mm -hmm. um, uh, to get rid of their goods off the ports when their goods are buried under 20 containers and they can't actually get them out. And it's just extortion. It's, it's <laughs> just the the shipping company saying, yeah, we're going to charge you because we know you can't get the goods out. So we're just going to take money from you. Um, so uh, I think that's important to uh, reverse the, you know, kind of tragedy of deregulation that has that has uh, uh, furthered these problems. And then obviously through competition policy, we can make sure that there's more diversity of supply uh, mm -hmm. so that it's not just one company uh, that is creating, you know, half the mass in, in the world or whatever. Um, and uh, so I, I think there are opportunities at all levels of this to get a more resilient supply chain. All right. David Dayan, again, is the executive editor of The American Prospect, and we will link the prospect's coverage of supply chain woes in the description box below. David, thank you so much for your time. All right. Great. Thanks for having me.